Remember this, we must not forget that our saving faith is precious and valuable. We must be diligent to determine and know sound doctrine. We must preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember this, fake doctrine promises a refreshing reign of hope, but it brings dryness. Fake doctrine promises spiritual life, but it only brings death. Fake doctrine promises spiritual fruit, but only delivers emptiness. Remember this, the world has subtle and clever ways to try to confuse and discourage you. So keep yourself ready in God's love and pray for the Holy Spirit to build you up. Have mercy and compassion on those polluted by sin. Remember this, be ready to discern truth from almost truth. Be ready for Christ's return. Be ready to contend for the faith. Let's turn together in our Bibles to the book of Jude. Uh, we are going to study together specifically verses 8 through 13 this morning. Now, we've already discovered the past two Sundays of this series that the point of this little bitty letter to the body of Christ then in the first century and the body of Christ today is really summed up in verse 3 of Jude. You might say that verse 3 is the thesis of the book of Jude. And so the point of this letter is to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And as we found out in week one, that word contend that's used there in verse three in the original language is where we get our English word agonize. It means that we as believers are to earnestly labor and agonize to clarify and to defend the Christian gospel. We've already seen this from the book where there are people in the church who were apostates. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Greek word for apostasy means defection or falling away. Jesus spoke a lot about people who would follow him for a while, but eventually fall away. The seminal verse for me in terms of apostasy is Hebrews 3.12. Kind of sums it up well, where the author of Hebrews says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's apostasy. So someone who is apostate is not a struggling Christian going through a season of difficulty or doubt. It's not merely an unbeliever, but it's a person who tries to act like a believer, but they're not truly saved. They, they hang around God's people for a season, but eventually they fall away because they were never genuinely born again to begin with. They are a pretender. That's what an apostate person is. And that's what was happening in the churches that Jude was writing to. And it can happen in churches today, friends. Particularly, it becomes a problem if one of these folks steps into a teaching or a leadership role in the church. Then you've got a false teacher. So as believers, we together contend for the faith. In the places that we work, we contend for the faith. In our families, we contend for the faith. But in the context that's most in view by Jude here is in our church, McGregor Baptist Church, we members together, we contend for the faith. And in the set of verses we're gonna be studying today, Jude begins to show us why that matters. So how about we see why that matters, shall we? Let's stand together. If you're able to, in honor of the reading of God's word. 
And like Pastor Kerry did last Sunday, I'm going to start from the top. So let's begin in verse one. The word of God says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own proper position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, and this is the the beginning of the verses we'll look at today. Verse eight, yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated this morning. Now, probably like you, um, I've seen on the local news some interesting interviews as of late. There have been many interviews since the storm of people who rode out the storm from Fort Myers Beach or Sanibel or one of the other devastated areas. And there's a similar theme to all of these interviews where people say, I didn't think it was gonna be that bad. Or we've been through hurricanes before, but we didn't think it was gonna be that devastating. And yet it was. And friends, in a similar way, we might be tempted to think that apostasy in our church or false teachers in our church is something that's not gonna be that bad. But what Jude does here in the verses we just read is he shows why it matters. And it matters because the danger is real for every church. That's the big idea of our passage today. For the believer, contending for the faith matters because the danger is real. Otherwise, the word of God wouldn't address it. But it does. And here's how Jude addresses it. 
Number one, he begins by making the case. The first thing on your outline is the case. Jude is gonna make the case as to why the danger of apostasy is real. And he does that by sharing two concerns and one contrast. The first, he shares a concern. And that's found in verse eight. Now, in verses five through seven that we studied last Sunday, Jude had referred to several historical examples from the Old Testament. There were, there were three of them. There was Israel who rebelled. There was a group of angels who rebelled. And then there, there were the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who rebelled. And all three of those groups at one time seemed to have had the blessing of God on them, but eventually they fell away. And as a result, God's judgment came on them. So when we get to verse eight, when Jude says in like manner, he's talking about what he just discussed in verses five through seven, those three examples. He says in like manner, these people also, now he's pointing to and referring to the influential false teachers in the church in his day who were rebelling as well. And it just makes the point that the problem of apostasy hasn't gone away from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And that's why it matters. It's why the people in those churches needed to earnestly contend for the faith. And guess what? In October of 2022, it still hasn't gone away. It's still a problem. We'd like to think that it's not. We'd say, oh, that would never happen in my church. Our elders would never lead us astray. My life group teacher would never lead me astray. Friend C.S. Lewis called that kind of thinking chronological snobbery, and he's right. But the beautiful thing about this tiny letter is that Jude tells us what to look for. I mean, how do you spot someone who's apostate? How do you, how do you find someone who's a pretender? Well, let's see. Read verse eight with me. Look at what he says. He says, these people relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So let's take those characteristics of an apostate one at a time. First, he says, defile the flesh. Just like in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, these pretenders in the first century church degrade the human body and advocate in the church for no moral restraints. They have no moral restraints in their own lives, so why shouldn't they export that to everybody else? Anything goes in the mind of an apostate person because they are living to satisfy only their own desires. And we see that today, do we not? People living to defile the flesh. It's completely consistent that a sexually promiscuous culture in which we live also has no hesitation in killing the product of the sexual union, which is a baby, a child defiling the flesh. It makes sense to a pagan mind on both ends of that process. Apostate people defile the flesh. Another characteristic that Jude mentions here is that they reject authority. The apostate person rejects authority, which is also consistent with a pagan mindset. When you believe that you have the ability to produce your own truth, why in the world would you ever listen to anybody else? By default, you're the highest authority in your own life. So not only does an apostate person reject the authority of the humans that are in their life, they're ultimately they're rejecting God's authority. Friends, this is one of the reasons that church membership is so important. 
Because church membership is you and I willingly placing ourselves under the authority and teaching of this church. We place ourselves under the shepherding of the elders of this church and we submit ourselves to God's authority that he's given them to care for our souls. That's the heart of church membership. Not about putting your name on a roll, it's about placing yourself under the authority of a local church. So in verse eight, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and then they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, we typically think of the term blaspheme to mean when someone uses God's name as an expletive or a curse word. And it does encompass that, but it's way bigger than that. It's actually, blasphemy is actually when, when someone takes God and his word too lightly. And Jude says this is a characteristic of an apostate person in the church the pretender who really isn't a Christian. They blaspheme the glorious ones. And so there's two questions that fall out of this phrase. One, who are the glorious ones? And I'll get to that in a minute. But, but the second one is, what's the reason an apostate person acts in the manner that they do? And the answer is actually in the beginning of verse eight. We kind of blew right by it. Look back up at the beginning of verse eight where it says they were relying on What? Their dreams. Don't miss that because that's dangerous. Brothers and sisters, if anybody tells you that they had a dream from God about you or a vision from God about you or that they have a word of God for you, if they're not reading from the Bible, love them enough to rebuke and correct them. The faith that we hold to here in this church comes from the word of God itself, not somebody's dream or vision or word that they think they've gotten from God. Remember, verse three says that the faith is once for all delivered. Past tense, we already have it. There's no need for a new revelation because dreams and visions and a word we think we heard from God can be arbitrary and subjective it can be based upon the emotional state of our hearts at the moment that we think we hear it or even the bad pizza we ate the night before. So the scriptures must be the source of objective truth for us. So this first concern in the case that Jude is making here is about apostasy. And before he shares his second concern, he makes the contrast, that's letter B on your outline, the contrast. And what happens in verse nine is I think we get an indication who the glorious ones are that he mentions in verse eight by the fact that Michael the archangel is referred to here. So it makes sense to me that the glorious ones in verse eight would be angels. Now there's lots of different interpretations for this, but this is also one of those times where it's helpful to employ the principle of letting scripture interpret scripture. Because the term glorious one is also used in one of the related passages about apostasy that I put at the bottom of your sermon notes this morning. It's the second Peter two passage. And in second Peter two, Peter's describing false prophets as bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So Peter is making the same contrast between false teachers and the angels that Jude is making. The only difference in Jude is that Jude actually names Michael. 
And this mention of Michael in verse nine is fascinating. And if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that Michael shows up in a couple of different places, right? The book of Daniel in the Old Testament and, and in Revelation in the New Testament. And his main responsibility as the archangel is the protection of Israel, God's people. But nowhere else in the whole Bible is there a mention of Michael, the archangel, fighting Satan over the body of Moses. That's unique to this verse right here. Now, we know from the book of Exodus that Moses didn't go into the promised land, right, because of his sin. And we know from Deuteronomy 34 that Moses was buried intentionally in an undisclosed location that's never really specified in Scripture. But in terms of this battle over Moses' body, verse nine is all we get about this from the Bible. Now, Jude's point in mentioning this is to point out the contrast between how Michael rightly handled his opposition to Satan and how the apostate people in the church are wrongly handling their opposition. Unlike the apostate people of Jude's day, Michael, Michael didn't blaspheme Satan even when it would have been right to do so. But instead, he left it to God. Look at verse nine in your Bibles. It says, he, meaning Michael, did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Again, Michael did not rebuke Satan, but he left it in God's hands. Brothers and sisters, I know it is tempting when you and I get frustrated about circumstances in life and we scream out, Satan, I rebuke you. Or Satan, get behind me. But we don't pray to Satan. Nor do we have any need to address him. He's a dog on a leash being held at bay by the sovereign God of the universe. And if the archangel of the Lord is careful about how he deals with Satan, then we ought to be even more careful about how we deal with Satan. See, Michael trusted God to deal with Satan, and that's the point here. And Jude brings that contrast to light to really to show how unwise and puffed up these apostate people were in the church at that time. So now that he's shared a concern and the contrast, then he gives the second concern. Second concern on your outline, that's verse 10. Look at it with me in your Bibles. He says, but these people... But these people blaspheme all they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. This is the second concern here. You know, most false teachers that I've observed down through my 30 plus years of ministry, they have a swagger to them. And I don't mean that as a compliment. Publicly, they seem really, really confident. Yet at the same time, they are truly oblivious to the needs of other people and they are truly oblivious to their own sin. That's what Jude is talking about here when he says these false teachers blaspheme and mock what they don't understand. Pastor John MacArthur says apostates are intellectually arrogant and spiritually ignorant. See, these teachers don't understand the things of God. All they understand is their own self-interest and self-preservation for power and authority. Just like an animal. And Jude makes that point. 
Friends, I think one of our problems today in the church is that our modern sensibilities are at many times the exact opposite to the concerns of the New Testament. We are tempted to think that everyone has good motives and everything's gonna work out just fine. It's sort of a Disney-esque, happily ever after kind of attitude. But the word of God here in verse 10 is speaking against that kind of thinking because those who infiltrate the church are doing so to do harm. The work of a false teacher is the destruction of somebody else's faith and that's no small thing. Let's not forget that the thesis of this letter is to contend for the faith. So you know what that means? It means that there are times where it's appropriate for you and I to be contentious. Since Hurricane Ian, one of the painful, painful things that God is showing me is just how impatient I am. Even after 40 years of being a Christian, such an area of weakness in my life. Anybody else had their patience tested in the past month? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, God bless you. I thought so. The Bible definitely calls us to be patient. It's a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, of course. And there are many things that we are to be patient with, but not false teachers. Not with those who are apostate. Not with those who are pretenders in the church. The word of God does not instruct us to be patient with those who would distort the gospel and pervert God's grace. Friends, this is why it matters. The message of the gospel is so precious that the word of God itself instructs us to be contentious with those who would use it for their own evil purposes. Particularly in our midst. And this is the case that Jude makes. That the danger of apostasy is real. So by the time we get to verse 11, the second way Jude addresses this danger is he does so by giving the caution. Number two on your outline is the caution. Look at verse 11 in your Bibles. I want you to just take a second just to read it to yourself. Verse 11. He begins the statement with what? Say it. Woe, woe to them. Now here in the original language of Greek, this is a definite interjection. Now I'm about to show how old I am, but if you grew up watching Schoolhouse Rock, do you remember what an interjection is for? Interjection for excitement or emotion. I'm not gonna sing the rest of it, I promise. But this interjection here in verse 11 it's filled with grief. The Old Testament prophets used the statement of woe a bunch, and Jesus used it too. It's a strong caution, and it deserves the exclamation point that it gets here. But there's an intense distress that comes with it. And many of us know this personally. Some of us have had a person in our minds since we started the series of Jude. We've been thinking about someone who fits the apostate description, someone who professed to be a believer at one time, but now it's clear that they're not. And that is a burden to us because we love them. It could be a friend or someone for our extended family, or it could be one of our own children. It's personal. And honestly, if that's you, it's hard to read the book of Job, Job, isn't it? Because 
To earnestly contend for the faith may mean we'll have to have some uncomfortable conversations at Thanksgiving this year. Let's just be honest about it. How do you handle a relationship like that? Well, I believe there's a helpful moment in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus has a conversation with a rich, young ruler. If you know the account, you know that the young man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers truthfully and he gives him a list of commands that he must keep. And the guy says, I've kept all those since my youth. Which A, wasn't true, and B, shows deceived how, how really deceived he was about himself. But here's the kicker. Mark 10, 21, the Bible says this. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to, to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Brothers and sisters, there will be more times than we want in our life where we have to speak hard truth to those we love. Notice that Jesus didn't say, I love you, but you lack one thing. That's not what Mark 10, 21 says. It says he loved the rich young ruler and because of his love for him, he spoke hard truth to him. Sometimes loving someone is about having conversations where we have to share hard truth with the other person because we love them. Truth and love are not mutually exclusive in the Bible. Do you think Jude wanted to write this letter? I bet not. But the evidence was clear to him that the church was experiencing an erosion of truth. And he loved the church. So he was compelled to say something. People were headed down the wrong path. And Jude describes them in a couple of ways. Stay in verse 11. Look at what it says. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now that's a mouthful. But we know from Genesis 4 that Cain killed his brother Abel. That was his rebellion. And we know from Deuteronomy 23 that Balaam was an Old Testament prophet who loved money more than he loved God. And that was his rebellion. And we know from number 16 that Korah spoke against the leadership of Moses and he actually led a rebellion against Moses. Now, this week in our Beyond the Notes podcast, I'm gonna dive into the significance of each of those three examples in more detail. But we still have to ask the question this morning, what's Jude's point in mentioning these three things? Well, all three of these are bad examples, we would agree. And they're accounts of people rebelling ultimately against God's authority. And that's the central problem with someone who is apostate. They don't want a master. They don't think they need a Lord. So woe to the apostate today. Jude is sounding the caution about the pretenders in the church. And then finally, like every good writer does, Jude uses great metaphors to illustrate the danger that apostates pose to the church. And that's number three on your outline, the comparisons. The comparisons. First of all, the first one that he mentions is dangerous reefs. Look at verse 12. He begins by comparing apostates to, look at it with me, hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Now, captains in the first century had to look out for hidden reefs because, well, if they didn't, they didn't have sonar in that day. They didn't have radar. 
So if they hit a reef, they could sink their ship. These rocks were just under the surface of the water, hidden. And they were a danger and hard to spot, particularly when the water is calm. You can see reefs easier when it's real wavy outside. So it is with false teachers. It could look on the surface in a church that everything's really calm and fine, but if nobody's paying attention to what's being taught, there's a subversive danger that just under the surface, it can wreck the church. And the love feast that Jude mentions here was a regular gathering of the early church where they would observe the Lord's Supper just like we did this morning. And then after that, they would have a big meal together. It was a sweet time of fellowship, really. But these false teachers just fit right into that. And they had no fear of being caught. They just acted like they were a part of the church when in reality, they were a danger to the church. He calls them hidden reefs, but he also calls them selfish shepherds. Stay in verse 12. He says, they are shepherds feeding themselves. Now, you don't have to be an agricultural engineer to know who a shepherd is supposed to feed, do you? Who is a shepherd supposed to feed? The sheep, not themselves. Friends, a surefire way to spot a false teacher is to notice whether or not they're using their position to benefit themselves. Selfish shepherds think only about themselves. They actually see other people as a means to get what they want. This is one of the many reasons that pastoral abuse of power is a heinous sin. And Jude is right to point it out here. Friends, God has designed authority to bless those who are under that authority. That's the thing that we see over and over again in the Bible is that God has designed authority to bless those who are under it. Not manipulate them, not lord over them, but to bless them. That's how it should work in a family. That's how it should work in the local church. Jesus in his own teaching in John 10 spoke of the difference between a good shepherd and a hired hand. And the real shepherd, the good shepherd, is doing what he's doing because he loves the sheep. He'd, he'd give his life for those sheep but not the hired hand. He's just cashing a check. That's all. He says they are selfish shepherds. He also says they're waterless clouds. Waterless clouds. He goes on to make that point in verse 12. Now, I love to watch it rain. Ever since I was a kid, rain and storms just fascinated me. And, and when our boys were younger, um, you know, we had to be creative about getting them out of the house during the rainy season. So when it was raining outside, but it wasn't lightning, we'd, we'd let them go play in the rain in the driveway. Don't you judge me. Don't you judge me. And they loved it. They absolutely loved it. We have hilarious pictures of them doing that. But you know, there were times when it looked like it was gonna rain and then, eh, it doesn't. You know that in Southwest Florida. And that was disappointing to our boys. But imagine you're a farmer in the first century and, and the clouds that you see on the horizon moving towards you are gonna be good for your crops. And then the clouds get there and then it doesn't rain. That's not just disappointing, that's dangerous. And the danger about these false teachers is that they look on the outside, it's like somebody that can truly refresh us and help us. But when that time comes for them to deliver, they can't because they don't have the living water. They don't have Christ. They are waterless clouds. 
He also calls them dead trees. Look at what he says. Jude compares them to fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. (laughs) Again, most of us aren't Middle Eastern farmers in the room. But if fall is the time of year that a farmer expects to see fruit on the tree, but in this comparison, there's no fruit when there should be fruit. Doesn't make sense. But that's how false teachers work. And they are never gonna be fruitful in terms of the kingdom of God. He says they're twice dead, uprooted, meaning they're never gonna produce eternal lasting fruit ever. Oh, they will have worldly success, no doubt. You wanna hear some net worth figures? Joyce Meyer, $25 million. Benny Hinn, 60 million. Joel Osteen, 100 million. T.D. Jakes, 150 million. Kenneth Copeland, $760 million in net worth. But they're dead trees. They don't and they won't ever produce godly fruit because they're peddling a dead gospel that has no hope. And I know some of you don't like it when we call out names. But as elders here at McGregor, our job is to protect our members from false doctrine. And we have to be careful when we handle the word of God. And yes, at the same time, we're obligated to warn you about those we know who are false teachers. Because if you regularly listen to a false teacher, you're in danger yourself. Friends, if your source of spiritual nourishment comes from a dead tree, you're eventually gonna starve to death. He calls them dead trees. He also calls them wild waves. Look at what verse 13 says. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wild and powerful waves are something we are familiar with, right? See, false teachers promise a powerful ministry with big results and lots of numbers. More is always better. Have you ever noticed that? You gotta have hype, you gotta have fanfare and attractional hooks to get people to come, but there's never a call to repentance. There's never a call to holiness. So the growth that happens is actually short-lived. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever walked on the beach and see the foam that comes up with the waves as they hit the shore? You ever seen that? Does that foam last? No, it'll quickly disappear. It doesn't last. And that's real similar to the false prophets of Jude's day and ours as well. They can make a lot of noise and do a lot of damage, but they don't last. Finally, he calls them wandering stars in the end of verse 15. He says, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. (laughs) If you lived in the first century, what would a wandering star be to us today? A meteor, right? And, and for much of human history, meteors have been called falling stars or shooting stars. And they're beautiful. It's usually a bright flash that's followed by a, a trail of light. And it doesn't last long. If you get to see it, it's cool because it just happens for a few seconds and then it's gone. Jude says that's a really good comparison to apostate people. There's a brief moment of excitement and they give light momentarily, but where do they ultimately fall? He says into into the darkness. 
See, the real problem for our wandering star, particularly for sailor, (laughs) is that they're not reliable to navigate by. And false teachers aren't reliable to navigate your life by either. And I think that's the point of the comparison here. You know, it's kind of funny. The Bible uses the term morning star for two different people in the scriptures. (laughs) You know who they are? One's Satan and the other's Jesus. Two stars. But only one of them is reliable to navigate your life by. And his name is Jesus. Even the book of Jude comes back (laughs) to Jesus. Friends, contending for the faith matters because the danger of apostasy is a very real thing. Let's not take it lightly.